Great, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please help us now as we look at this last chapter of Romans. Father, please teach us what teach us what we need to know, we ask. Please, would your spirit shape us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes when you go to a London Underground station and there's that announcement, mind the gap. And sometimes you could have that announcement kind of over Romans 16. Mind the gap particularly the gap between the gospel and everyday life. That is this message of Jesus and the nitty-gritty reality of what I do every day. There can be a danger that those two things become disconnected, that we drive a wedge between them. And as Paul writes Romans 16, he writes to show us how the gospel, everything that he's told us about Jesus, overflows into his everyday life and everyday reality. And it's going to challenge us. Challenge us to mind the gap. So let's dive in. I want to show you three things um, that I think Romans 16 uh, can help us with. The first is that if the gospel is true, if Jesus has saved us and forgiven us and welcomed us, then relationships really matter. Relationships matter. So let me say something obvious. There are lots of names in Romans 16. You probably noticed that as it was read. And names are important. And this is um, really cool because when you think of Paul writing the book of Romans and he writes all this kind of deep, profound theology, but he's not writing it to some nameless kind of blob of people. He's not writing it abstractly. He's writing it with these names in mind. It's as if he can picture these people as he writes this stuff. As he writes, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, these glorious truths of the gospel. He's got these people in his mind. He can picture them. And he's got these people in his heart and he loves them. He he knows their names. And names really matter. Your name is important, right? You care about your name. You know what it's like when you go into one of those shops that perhaps they sell mugs that have got names on for people to buy. And it's, it's very hard to resist checking whether your name was counted worthy of a mug. And you scan through and your heart sinks as you discover that your name didn't make the cut. And you feel slightly personally offended by that. Or when someone gets your name wrong, or they spell it wrong, or they put an A where there should be an E, or a double L, or whatever it is. And, and we can feel slightly, that's my name, it matters to me. And we shrug it off and say, oh, it doesn't matter. But names matter. And that's true for Paul. Now, I think Romans 16 is even more remarkable when you realize that Paul has never been to this church. This isn't a church that he started. You you might expect this sort of chapter if he'd been there for 10 years and shared his life with these guys, but he hasn't. I mean, some of them have worked with him and have traveled around and are now in Rome, but many of these people he's never met. And yet he knows their names. You just got to get you asking the question, how does he know their names? How does he know so many of them? I think the answer, a clue to the answer, you can find back in Romans chapter 1. 
And Romans chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says, God is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. He knows their names because he's praying for them. I think what we have in Romans 16 is Paul's prayer list for the church in Rome. He knows these names because these are the people he prays for. And to have this sort of an interest in people's names, this is what flows out of the gospel. Paul does this because of Jesus. And I want us to be challenged about this. I want us to think about this. Now, I know that some of us, um, that many of us find remembering people's names hard. I'm not very good with names. And that's because names are hard to remember. They're sort of an abstract thing, and they can be quite difficult to, to lodge in your brain. But I want to encourage us from Romans 16, because of the gospel, to be invested in remembering one another's names. I think it really matters. And you know how much it means when someone remembers your name. When you walk in and they greet you by name, that says a lot. But it is hard and it's slightly awkward as well, isn't it? Because we've all been in those prayer meetings where you're, you're praying in a small group and you start to pray for someone and you can't remember their name. Your mind goes blank. And you have to use those Christian kind of shortcuts to get, to get out of that situation. You know, I pray for my dear sister here on my left with red hair and green shoes. You know her. Pray for her. And it, it is slightly awkward. But let's be those who care about names. Here's, a, you know, here's really practical stuff, right? So when you meet someone for the first time and they tell you your na their name, it can be hard even within 10 seconds to remember it. So when they say their name, make a mental note to go, yes, say it back into your head. Yes, their name is Rob. Okay, got that. And then try and use their name at some point in that conversation to, to remind yourself of it. And as you walk home from church, go through the people that you've met and say, can I remember their name? What was her name? What was her name? And you try and remember it. And then when you get home, write them down and then start praying for them. And if you can't remember a name, then perhaps phone someone up and say, who was that person that I was, we were chatting to on Sunday? It's good to be invested in remembering one another's names. So that next time you see them, you can greet them by name and tell them you're praying for them. And let me make a special plea um, to work particularly hard when we're talking to people of different cultures because our names are different. And it can be hard work to remember people's names from different cultures, names that you're not used to. So take the time to listen. Ask someone to pronounce their name carefully, to write it down, to take the time to learn it properly so that you can really love them well. I want to encourage us to be people who care about names. And as we care about one another's names, actually we're being like God towards one another. This is not just a nice technique for making people feel welcome. This is an outflowing of the gospel. Do you know what? God knows your name. When you trust in Jesus and he forgives you and he loves you and he accepts you and he welcomes you as your son or daughter, your name is written in his book of life, we're told in the Bible. God knows your name. 
And so even on those days when it feels like no one else knows your name, and even when the church fails and gets it wrong, and we do get it wrong, God will never forget your name. He knows you by name. But because he knows us by name, let's be those who work hard at names. But this isn't just a list of names. I want to show you that these relationships that Paul delights in are relationships that are saturated with Christ. Jesus is, they're Jesus overflowing relationships. So when Paul thinks about these people, he doesn't just think, oh, yeah, he's a nice bloke and she's great. I like her. And oh, he makes me laugh. And oh, yeah, we had great banter with them. That's not what he thinks of. What he thinks of when he thinks of these people, these names, is what Christ is doing in them. They're Christ-saturated relationships. I mean, just look at it with me. Um, Romans chapter 16, verse 3, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila, um, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Or verse 5, Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Or Andronicus and Junia, um, who were in Christ before I was. Ampliatus, my dear friend, in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker, in Christ. Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. And the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa, whose women work, who women who work hard in the Lord. Persis, who works hard in the Lord. Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I mean, it's, it's difficult to miss, isn't it? In the Lord, in Christ. Yeah, they were in Christ. But I, I see Christ in them. Yeah, we served alongside each other for Christ. He was chosen in Christ. This is all delights in what Jesus is doing in relationships. And let's be like that in our relationships with one another. To see what Christ is doing. Us. Sister, I can see what Christ is doing in you. I can see you growing in Christ. And I thank God for it. Let's have deliberately intentional, Christ-saturated relationships. So if we go out with um, someone for a coffee, it can feel a little bit awkward sometimes, can't it, to be the one who mentions the Bible um, or mentions Jesus or asks, you know, suggests that you pray. But we need to get over that awkwardness because that is normal. It is the normal thing for two Christians who love Jesus to encourage one another in Christ. To get the Bible open. To talk about something that you've read, something that's encouraged you. Or or to share a battle or a struggle. To pray with one another. To be vulnerable. To open up to one another. to, To speak of Jesus with one another. To encourage one another in Christ. When you read something in the Bible that encourages you, why not text a few people and say, I, just, I was encouraged by this this morning and I'm praying for you. Let's have relationships saturated with Christ. But the other thing just to notice about this list of names and these relationships that matter to Paul is that they're beautifully diverse. When Paul lists these names... It is not that Paul just has relationships with one sort of person. He's not just interested in Jews or not just interested in Gentiles. He's not just interested in the rich or the poor. He's not just interested in men. He's not just interested in women. He's interested in this beautiful diversity. Some of the names in this list are clearly slaves' names. Probably still working as slaves on the lowest rung of society. Others in this list are household owners who welcome others into their homes. And Paul celebrates all of that relationship and they're intermingled together, not separated out. He doesn't treat them differently, but they're all part of the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving. 
Some people on this list are married and some of them are single. And Paul doesn't see either category as superior or inferior to the others. He just delights in what Christ is doing in those relationships. Some are men, some are women. Paul highly values the ministry of women. And I think sometimes Paul gets um, a reputation for being a bit down on women and, and sexist. Actually, Romans 16 would be one of the places where you see how absolutely vital and dependent upon women Paul was in his ministry. I mean, just look at um, verse 1, Phoebe. He talks about Phoebe, this deacon of the church in um, Cancrea, which is um, just near Corinth. And, and it seems that Phoebe was the one who is carrying this letter from Paul to the church in Rome. It's likely that she's on a business trip, uh, maybe some kind of legal thing. She's on a business trip from Corinth to Rome, and Paul says, oh, could you take this letter to the church in Rome? And this woman, Phoebe, look at how he speaks of her in verse 2. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, to give her any help she may need for, for, from you, for she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. Here is a woman who is likely to be um, significantly wealthy and has used her opportunity and her gifts and her hard work and her money to invest in this mission of the gospel. And Paul thanks God for it. And then in verse 3, he talks about Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple. Interesting that he puts Priscilla, the woman, first. And Priscilla and Aquila, we know from the book of Acts, had a teaching ministry together. They were teaching. So you have this model of Phoebe, who seems to be a businesswoman who is funding stuff. And then you have the Priscilla and Aquila who, is, who are teaching together. And, and there's this Beautiful diversity, even within the gifts that you see in this list. And we need to be able to recognize and celebrate our diversity, not valuing some above others, not putting marriage on a pedestal as though that is the best thing, but actually saying whether you're married or whether you're single, there are opportunities to serve the Lord and we should celebrate one another and celebrate men and women. Celebrate those who are both slaves and masters. And even um, in, in Romans 16, it's clear that there are different groups that Paul is writing to. So there's not one church in Rome. There are different churches meeting in different groupings. He talks about the Lord's people in one place and then the brothers and sisters within, in another place. And, and this church is kind of Split up into different groups of these diverse communities. So let's be a let's be a church who overflow in relationships. Because of the gospel. Relationships matter, but we need to be move on. Not only um, do relationships matter, secondly, when the gospel shapes real life, we will be alert to the fact that danger is lurking. So even as Paul thinks about these precious people that he loves, even as he's concerned about them, you can feel this concern overflowing as he thinks about the danger that they might be in. And that's painful to him. And so rather abruptly in verse 17, he seems to turn to a warning. He's been doing all these names. And in verse 17, he says, 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you've learned. Watch out. He is worried that they may be deceived. He's worried that they may be naive. Now, we all hate being deceived, right? So you get the email that tells you a distant relative has left you 20 million pounds in their will, and all you have to do is send your credit card details and your PIN number and your mother's maiden name and your three latest passwords, and they'll release the funds to you. And Paul is writing, saying, don't be naive. Don't be deceived. That's what Paul is worried about for this precious church in Rome, full of precious people that he loves. There'll be those who come along who put obstacles in the way, who try to deceive and to divide. He talks about those people um, as people of smooth talk and flattery. That's how deceivers work, right? It sounds good and it sounds flattering and it makes us feel good. But it's dangerous. And so when we connect the gospel to real life, we'll realize that the the church is always under threat. It's always been that way. And, And we must not be naive to the danger. There is an enemy who wants to destroy this church. The one that the Bible calls Satan. We can be naive and write him off and say, oh, we don't believe in that sort of superstitious stuff. But that would be an error. Paul wants us to wake up and to see the danger, see the danger that is lurking. Don't be deceived. Satan really only has two weapons, violence and deception. When Jesus talked about Satan, he spoke of Jesus, uh, Jesus spoke of him as a murderer and a liar. Those are his two weapons. Violence and lies. Now, we live in a place at the moment in our country where there's not much threat of physical violence to the church. We're not under the threat of horrendous persecution physically. But we need to be on our guard because we are massively under threat from the danger of deception, of flattery, and foolish talk. There is plenty of opportunity for division. There are plenty of people around who will set out to deny what Paul has spelled out in Romans and will draw people away from Jesus. So stuff like, look, God is a God of love. He's not a God of wrath. God isn't angry at sin. You know, that's just a nasty medieval idea. Now, you're valuable to God. God isn't worried about who you sleep with. God isn't worried about what you do with your life. He's not worried about sexual purity. Just be yourself and fulfill your desires. Anyway, he's God. Surely he wants you to be happy. Do you see that's flattering? Because it's putting you at the center. You do what you want. And Paul says, be alert to the danger. Don't be lulled by the flattery. Do you know, when you think about flattery, it is a powerful drug to us. Especially when someone that we perceive to be more important, more powerful than us, flatters us. Pays us a bit of attention. Tells us that we're great. Tells us that we're gifted. Tells us that we could do anything. We can easily be deceived and sucked in. 
Flattery never confronts, it only affirms. Flattery never cuts to the heart, it only strokes the ego. Flattery is never motivated by love, it is only motivated by a desire to gain control. And flattery often will feed our sense of injustice that we've been treated wrong. So people will tell us, come, come along and say, oh, you've been treated very badly. You deserve better than that. We need to watch out for flatterers. I read a quote this week from a writer who said, the trouble with most of us is that we'd rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Let's be careful. Let's be see the danger that we might be distracted from the truth that Paul has written about the gospel and may be flattered by some other truth, someone else coming along and telling us other things. When you read the gospel, you discover Jesus never flattered anyone. Jesus never manipulated anyone. Jesus never tried to win favor with people. He always spoke with integrity and with truth. And I think that's what makes him so compelling and trustworthy. He will not flatter you, but he will love you. He will love you to the extent of dying to forgive you. So watch out for those who would flatter. Watch out for those who would cause division. Watch out for a sense of spiritual elitism that grows up. There could be a power struggle within the church as different people try and take control. And Paul says, watch out for that. This is what's so striking about Paul's list of names. Remember it? It was so diverse. It was so beautifully inclusive. And Paul says, watch out for anyone who would bring division among you. So Satan is an enemy. He loves to breed suspicion. He loves to breed elitism. He loves to make some people feel like they're more special than everybody else. He loves to breed doubt and fear, and he loves to destroy churches. And so Paul says, wake up. We've heard about your obedience. You're doing great. You're trusting Jesus, but wake up. Don't shift from that. Keep giving yourself to what is good. And be innocent about what is evil. Don't go that way. Don't follow that. Don't be sucked down that route. Watch out for the danger that's lurking. But Paul isn't fearful in a sort of, oh, I don't know if you're going to survive. Actually, he's supremely confident. This isn't Paul trying to make the church panic. No, Paul is confident. So look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Here's the reality. The enemy who wants to destroy the church will be destroyed. The church will stand and Satan will be crushed. And this is an allusion back to um, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Right back at the start when when Satan in the form of the serpent came into the garden and with smooth talk and flattery, deceived the man and woman. He said, oh, God is just spoiling your fun. You, you should be like God. You should eat that fruit. And the man and woman fell for it. They were naive. They were deceived. And God said to the serpent, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 
It has always been the fate of the serpent, of Satan, that he will be crushed, he will lose. And that victory over Satan is seen in Jesus, where Jesus came into this world to crush Satan's head. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he defeated Satan once and for all. And therefore the victory is certain. And we now know that as the church, as those who follow Jesus, that Satan cannot destroy the church. And that one day he will be finally crushed forever. And that is when peace comes. It's a slightly strange phrase, isn't it? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Peace and crushing doesn't normally sound like it goes together. But actually it makes perfect sense. Because how do you bring true peace? Well, by removing the enemy. That's how every superhero movie finishes, right? Peace is restored when the body is destroyed and the hero wins. That's God's promise. God, by his grace, will crush Satan and the battle will be over. So we've got to be, we mustn't be naive. We've got to keep loving Jesus, keep holding on to this gospel of Jesus because danger is lurking. But now look at how Paul ends. We're going to jump down now to verse 25. This is the last sentence of the book of Romans. <laughs> what a sentence. It's one of Paul's kind of classic sentences. It's really long and really complicated. But what it shows us is that when you mind the gap, when the gospel impacts every area of your life, you will live a life that says now to him. Now to him. My life is about him. So look how he ends. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That is a classic Paul sentence. In many ways, it should have been a very simple sentence. The sentence could simply have been, now to him who is wise, be glory forever. That would have been simple. But instead what Paul does is he thinks about God and as he declares this doxology, this outburst of praise to God, what happens is he stuffs five clauses in between. And so he says, now to him, oh, which him? Oh, the him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. Why do we live now to him lives? Because it's only him, it's only God who's able to establish you. It's only God who's able to make you strong. Do you feel weak? Do you feel fragile? Well, then look to the one who can establish you and make you strong, who has the power to hold you. If we live our lives now to me, now to me, and we rely upon our own strength, we are in a very dangerous position. But when we live our lives now to him, we rest on the one who's able to establish us. And he establishes us by the gospel. Oh, which gospel is that, Paul? Oh, that's the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. There is no other good news except for Jesus Christ. That is how we are established and made strong. 
We are not talking about a philosophy or a nice way to live. We're talking about a person. It all rests on him. Only Jesus is the perfect one. Only Jesus is the son of God. Only Jesus has been offered as a sacrifice of atonement to pay for our sin. It is only Jesus' blood that can make us clean and forgive us. It is only Jesus who can give us peace with God. It is only Jesus who means that now grace reigns through righteousness. It's only Jesus who has defeated death and has been raised to new life. It's only Jesus who means there's now no condemnation for us. It's only Christ. He is the gospel. Now to him, now to him. It's all about him. This is how you become established and strong. And this gospel, Paul goes on, is something that was hidden that has now been revealed. It's always been God's plan. It's always been God's promise. It was hidden. It's now been revealed. It's God's idea, not our idea. It's his plan, not ours. He is the eternal one. We are not. And therefore, this gospel is a place where we can find sure and safe ground. Now to him, who's able to establish us by this gospel through Jesus that was hidden and has now been revealed. And it's for the Gentiles. So that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Again, Paul just wants to spell out that this is not a restricted thing. It's not for some, it's for all people. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. Everyone is welcomed to come and to receive this gospel, this good news. Now to him. And we're called to an obedience that comes from faith. Not an obedience that comes from fear. Not a list of rules that says you're going to get smashed unless you do this. But an obedience that rests upon faith. That is as we trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. As we trust in his forgiveness that he's won for us. As we trust in his love for us. It begins to transform us so that we live in obedience to God. But not an obedience that comes from fear, but from faith. You're free and now you obey God by trusting Jesus and trusting his power and living that out. Yet now to him. And when we see the gospel in all its beautiful power, it will impact every area of our lives. All of our ambitions, all of our dreams, all of our hopes, all of our relationships, everything will become now to him. That's what the gospel drives us to. And it means that we need to reject a now to me way of living and live for him alone. There is no better way to live our lives. There is no other wise one to whom all glory is due forever and ever. And therefore we give our lives for the glory of God that we might serve him. So let's be people who mind the gap. The gospel will lead us to a place where relationships really matter, where we watch out for the dangers that lurk that might pull us away from Jesus and we live our lives now to him, to him, to him. To him be glory forever. Let's bow our heads and pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Father, we're so sorry when we seek to take glory for ourselves, when we live 
to me, to me, to me. Lord, please set us free, change us, and let us live to your name be the glory. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for this precious gospel which changes everything. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.